0: Graph towards the top of the page. What we've learned over the um, the last group of weeks is we've really um, got gotten into two two basic um, two basic concepts. Uh, one, in regards to uh, learning patterns. Two, in regards to the um, centrality of trust as being a critical part of, of spiritual growth. These were two concepts, and I'll just review them very quickly in order to be able to continue this, this the, um, the text this evening because what Rav Chaim Latzata does with these two concepts is now he's taking it down to our generation. He's going to apply it to us. And he's going to say in our regards what we would be with the with the trust and what we are without the trust. And he has a very interesting way of analysing it and putting putting it into perspective. So but essentially just to review those two concepts so that we know what we're talking about and certainly for the people that have either come back or are here for the first time, just to give uh, a brief uh, brief overview. Essentially what Rav Moshe Chaim says is that being that God created his world with a free will system, it means that the ways by which man arrives at the final truth is very much up to the person himself. In other words, even if God destined this world to certain distinct learning patterns, but the particular way in which I am going to get to that point of realizing that which is uh, valuable and fulfilling as opposed to those things that are just the the cheap treats and the, the illusions of life has very much to do with the particular learning pattern that I select for myself. It's a, a very fascinating point, which Lozado makes, is that uh, there are many, there are various paths by which we can come to this realization, and God is committed that whatever the path might be that we choose, that we eventually learn, even within our poor choices, the final realization. And this is, uh, in other words, the the idea that there's only one way. To get to that final point of truthful realization, and if one doesn't walk on that road, so one is lost forever, so to speak, is not true. The way that God created his world is that there are many paths, some more pleasant than others, some easier than others, some that are more productive than others, but there is a commitment in the relationship that man has to God and man has to his world that no matter which particular path he stubbornly or not stubbornly chooses for himself, there lies within that selection the different twists and turns that will eventually, if he's open, will eventually move him back in the direction that will tackle the issues of reality as opposed to those that are illusion. This is one concept and uh, to do, uh, taking that concept into the s- a second concept which is trust Rav Meshachayim L'Tzata proposes the following when we deal with learning patterns there is a particular learning pattern that God would like us to follow or that God would like us to work with even though we don't necessarily comprehend the entire thing but to go into one particular learning pattern does create a tremendous amount of inner struggle certainly on a psychological level because the notion that I have to toe the line and I have to go one particular way if we want to admit it or not uh, has a lot we, we, we fight it inside we fight it inside for reasons of ego we fight it inside for reasons that we believe that it threatens the various things that we're not prepared to relinquish or to give up we have, inner conflict with, we have inner conflict with the whole notion that uh, you tell me that I'm free and then you tell me that there's only one way to do it. Well, make up your mind. Am I free or am I not free? And we've dealt with these issues. And essentially, what Rav says is that it's very hard to creep out of this internal conflict unless a person has a measure of heart, a measure of emotion towards God that is that is wrapped up in a certain degree, if only provisionally, of a certain amount of trust. If man only wants to move ahead uh, in terms of his spiritual development with a particular learning pattern, only with his intellect, and that he is not going to make an allowance, that because trust is an, is, a, is can be proven to be reasonable in terms of learning patterns, the person doesn't want to get involved in that then what's, uh, what will happen is that the person will build rationales for his particular learning pattern and will weave all kinds of webs of confusion with all kinds of sophisticated rationales and, therefore, and no matter how bright we are and how spiritually connected we are it is very difficult to c- comprehend the value or to buckle under or to buckle up and go ahead and do something where we're not fully there yet where we don't comprehend it, where we perceive it as being a limit to the exercise of our freedom or of our choices. It's very difficult. And this is where the issue of trust comes in. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we had an entire class on this issue of trust. And it's too difficult to go over. We didn't even deal with the text two weeks ago. We just spoke for 90 minutes about the concept of trust and uh, all of the different parts of it, which is difficult to go through. But these these are the two parts the concept of the various learning patterns and how a person can access the particular learning pattern and get themselves moving within the particular learning pattern that God desires for man through an incorporation of that of that commodity called trust. Right? These were the two elements. And Lozato points out that when we Um, when we are willing to extend a provisional amount of trust and we then move into the experiences of the learning pattern, sometimes we can gain knowledge and understanding and wisdom from the experience with the provisional trust that would take otherwise through the methodical intellectual patterns could take much, much longer to arrive at. And the thing that we left off with, the particular item that we left off with was a mind-boggling concept that Lozato points out that first man could have accomplished through extending himself in trust towards God in a few hours what can take thousands of years to do without trust. And that was a parallel that Lozato, that we, we dealt with last week, that everything that could have been accomplished in in that uh, breaking those ego barriers, breaking those barriers of, of mistrust in our relationship with God and not wanting to face God on all levels, even if it would have been for a number of hours, in the case of first man, he would have gained spiritually what we now struggle for for thousands of years to gain through the longer, harder journeys that will eventually all lead to the same thing. I told you so. And that's and that's and that's difficult to accept and it's difficult to swallow. You know, the "I told you so" is not something that we appreciate hearing. But as Lozado points out, Lozado says we very often um, put ourselves up to that because if we approach learning patterns with a stubbornness that it's guilty unless proven innocent, then okay, if that's the position that you take. So then God takes the opposite position and says, fine, if that's the way you want to come about to it, fine. But there will be a day where you will hear that resounding, I told you so. Not to say that God won't be happy when we hear it, because after everything is said and done, God would like us to have gotten there in a a shorter span of time without the pleasure of the I told you so. But the point being, that we set ourselves up for particular learning patterns. These are the two things which Rav Meshachay and Litzatah discussed and we, we really went into both of them. The stubbornness in terms of learning patterns and the, uh, the flexibility to trust in, in order to move into one particular learning pattern. This is what we've been dealing with over the weeks. And now I would like to take, the, take this into the text and see how Rav Moshe Chaim takes these two concepts of the selection of learning patterns and the concept of trust and how he applies it to all future generations after First Man. He used First Man as a case study. What did Adam Mauritian do wrong? Where was his mistake? What could he have accomplished if he would have done it right? He used Adam Mauritian as a case study. But after everything said and done 5,747 years ago is a little bit difficult to relate to in terms of a case study. So what Rav Chaim Lutzata is going to do is he's going to take all of that material and he's going to relate it to us and tell us what we can do and what happens in the absence of what we can do but don't do. And that's essentially what Rav Khan Lutzata wants to do in, the, in, in this part of the text. So let's look inside now. V'chein hu leban of Not bad, only ten minutes to get to the text. V'chein hu leban av And everything that I said up to this point about the stubbornness of the learning pattern on page 54, the new paragraph. And this is also true for the children that followed the generation of first man. In other words, all of the concepts which were discussed in terms of the learning pattern and trust are true for future generations as well. What does that mean? If man would truly be in search of wanting to perceive the truth and to establish this, this uh, realization of what is truth and what is reality through, through, uh, through the wise ways of, uh, and through the rational ways of accepting God's guidance, this would have been sufficient. He Do because the main thing is that man should arrive at a true knowledge and a true understanding of what reality is and what illusion is. There is, in other words, God didn't imprison mankind that they must go through circumstances no matter what. All of the circumstances that are part of history and part of our lives were all were all mandated from the point in time when we established a need for those circumstances but were we to set ourselves up in a way that we would be more opening, open to understanding things more open to accepting things more open to experimenting with things with a provisional trust so once we would arrive at that knowledge there would be nothing that would say no, but you still have to go through Gullis you still have to have some tragedies you still have to have some crises it's not true in other words, if man would go through the process that would would enable him to, to to tackle with the issues of illusion, in reality, that would be sufficient and he would be able to skip major circumstances and major events that do come to his life that otherwise wouldn't have come to, into his life altogether. So the the notion that every single thing that happens in my life was determined before I was even born is not true many of the things that happen to me in life are the adjustments or the reactions of God as I choose in order, in order to move me along a path that will finally make me confront the issues of illusion and reality. So because I chose one way, so God said, okay, since he chose this way and he's three steps away from the trolley track, I will make this happen and hopefully over time this will bring the person one step back from the steps that he's taken away. So, God is, is uh, so to speak, playing it by ear and reacting to what we do in concert with trying to move us closer to reality. Right? Now, there is something which is very fascinating in what Rav Moshe says over here. And we touched upon this a couple of weeks ago, but never with the clarity with which he says it in this particular paragraph. Let's go back to the first line of and so it is to the children after first man. Gamkane, it's also true. writes in if man would really want to comprehend this and to establish it in his mind, through knowledge and wisdom he would be able to, and he wouldn't have to live through many of the things that he lives through. Now, Rivmashikai and Lutzata is making a very interesting uh insinuation here. If man would only want. Those are the words of Ramesh Chaim Litzata. And this is a very this is a very soul searching statement because Rimajhaim Chaim Litzata, uh says that there are two issues. See, the way I presented the introduction of what we've done over the last few weeks, I presented in two ways. I, I presented two things. I presented the fact that man doesn't like a particular learning pattern. Why is it this way? May I have a different way of doing it. and then the idea that to be able to overcome that there has to be a certain amount of trust we skipped one step which is a basic premise, who says that I want to arrive at reality altogether who says that's true in other words I skipped a major step in other words I'm assuming that we all want to eventually live with reality and the question just is God says this is the way that you'll arrive at an appreciation of reality and I say I think I can do it this way well, I don't need all of the steps. I don't need all of the restrictions. I don't need all of the guidelines that you, you are giving me in order to reach reality. But of course, I want to reach reality. Right? What Rav Moshchei is saying is that this is not simple. The words of Rav is, Ki Oh, how I would... The word lulei, if we know Hebrew well, lule means, is, is the expression of a wish. Which means, Oh, how I would wish oh how I would wish uh, that man would only want this now let's explain what that means let's explain what that means I think that every person in 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 his lifetime on different levels runs away from the pursuit of wanting to live with reality in other words in other words it's not as if from the day that we are born or from the the day that we reach intellectual matu- maturity or spiritual maturity, that yes, this is a d- defined goal, and everything that I do, I ask myself the question is this something that is going to bring me in tune with the reality that I search for, the fulfillment that I search for? It's not that way. Because even if we arrive at some point in our lives, At the point of realizing that what I believed was reality is really illusion and illusion is, and reality is really evading me and I really want to look for it. But it takes a tremendous amount of discipline. It takes a tremendous amount of self-control to always be determined to remain on that target. It takes a tremendous amount of discipline because even though deep down we know that there are certain things in life that they're, they're just they're passing. They're temporal. They're just illusion. They're good for the moment, but they're not the real. They're, they're 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 not the real substance or content of life. But what do we say to ourselves? Every minute I have to have content. Every minute I have to I have to tackle with. Con- I don't need it every minute. Okay, Shabbos and at certain periods of time, and when when I'm in the in the atmosphere of dealing with content and reality. But if I'm going to have to deal with content from reality all the time, you know, I'm going to walk around with the whole world on my shoulders and I'm going to, I'm look, going to look like the saddest creature, the, uh, the most uh, lackluster kind of individual alive. And therefore, either on conscious or subconscious levels, what we tell ourselves is we give ourselves quote-unquote allowances. Today, now I don't have to deal with reality now I can live in fantasy land now I can be a child now I, don't have to, and now I don't have to tackle now I don't have to tackle with that now the truth of the matter is that I would never advise a person that once you come to this need for reality and content and substance never get it out of your mind and live every moment of the day with that in your mind this is not real Okay, This is not real because even if we come into contact with the fact that we have to strive towards content and we have to strive towards substance, there are many, many different levels in our connection to that realization. And on the very early levels where we begin dealing with that, we can't live with it from moment to moment. It's impossible to live with it from moment to moment because we're not there. That's jumping many, many steps all at once. The person that can live with the challenge of content and reality, every moment of life every moment of life is already tremendously advanced. I mean that's the distinction between the people who it says in the Chumash they lived full days. What does it mean they lived full days? It doesn't mean that they just lived to a ripe old age and they collected social security. They lived full days means that their day was always guided by that target of content and substance. So it was very special people and Tzadikim and Sidkanios and and that lived like that and everything was reviewed in that way but with that being true that we can't live with it every single moment because we're not there we're not on that spiritual level yet but on the other hand it's important not to fool ourselves and it's important to be conscious of the level of how much we live with content and, and illusion it's, that's also important in other words to to uh, live in the guise of believing that everything in my life all fits into content and to substance and to redzakhin and to talk yourself into this that you know everything is a mitzvah you know and everything that i'm doing really fits into the scheme of things to fool ourselves that we're living like that is also not is is also not wise and on the other hand to tell ourselves that since i can't do it all the time I might as well give it up altogether because I won't get anywhere if I'm only doing it sometimes is also not true. And I'd like to concentrate on that for a few moments. A person reaches the level of spiritual honesty of knowing that he doesn't always deal with content. He doesn't always deal with substance. There is a natural tendency in the person to say, well, being that I don't always deal with it, so that means I'm on target and off target, I'm hot and cold, so where can I get myself? And if I can't really get myself any, any, anywhere in particular, so then the whole thing is... So even the time that I am in content in reality is a waste of time. Because it's... it's it, I'm vacillating. I'm, so very often what people tell themselves is, Mach when you're ready for content in reality, you'll do it all the way. And until you're ready for content in reality, enjoy yourself. Right? and live in that in live in that world of illusion. And this is also not true. That's the other extreme. Both extremes. You know, see in spiritual development what we have to we have to stay away from is the unequivocal statements. You know, the extremes. The 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 one of total content in reality which is not really real for me. Or the one that says that since I can't do it all the time and I'm just jumping back and forth in a hot and cold, I can't really be going anywhere anyway, so why should I give up so much if I'm not going anywhere anyway? That's also not true. It's also not true because the, the fact is that every moment that a person does something because of a sense of that target, of content and reality, the person makes an advance. Every moment onto itself should be seen as an independent victory. And it's those occasional and uh, periodical uh, confrontations with content and reality that we try to maximize that will eventually make us stronger and will give us the ability to take more in. The, the, uh, The way that a system has to start off with a certain amount of a dosage and as the system gets stronger, it can take a higher dosage and a higher dosage and a higher dosage. As the system becomes acclimated with it, so too, this is a process. It's true that when we come in and out of content and reality, we're really living one of these pendulum kinds of lives. It's true, but it's worthwhile to to be involved in that kind of a process because if my heart is in the right place, and I really want to have more content and reality, every exposure to content and reality will give me the ability of being more connected to it and eventually growing to a higher level of it. But Rav Meshachayim Lutzatah, without trying to be facetious about it, makes that the first statement. In other words, let's start off from the beginning. Let's start off from the ABCs. Is this what you're really interested in? Right? Is this what you're really interested in? Which is, uh, which is a major question that has to be asked. And it's, n- it's a question that has to be asked, interestingly enough, and I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to say anything derogatory here, but this is a question that has to be asked once we are within a framework of religious observance just as much as if we're not. Because it can very often happen that we are in a framework of religious observance And we pat ourselves on the back that because we are in the framework of religious observance, I want reality. Right? It's not necessarily so. It's unfortunate that it's not necessarily so. Because I can be going through the mechanisms of a religious framework and I can be patting myself on the back that I'm doing this mitzvah and that mitzvah and this mitzvah and that mitzvah and I'm doing it, you know, I'm punching in the spiritual clock. I'm punching in. But where am I Really? I'm re- I really want the world that's out there. I want that whole world with its illusion, but I don't want to live with a guilty conscience or, or whatever else that might be. So therefore, I, I pay what is considered a lip service in terms of either lips or actions towards a certain amount of religious observance. And sometimes it's a greater threat within a framework of religious observance than outside of it. Why? because the person that's not in a framework of religious observance doesn't even have anything to hide behind so sooner or later he ha- he asks himself the question why am i alive for what is life worth Wh- what is life worth living so he's presented with the challenge of of meaning to life right? and he doesn't have answers for it and if he doesn't have the, a- the absence of answers will hopefully propel him in a direction of content but the person that can say, why am I living? Oh, I do mitzvahs. I keep Shabbos. I put on and I give stuck. What do you mean, why? So that already puts to rest the issue of content and reality. And now I can go dance my merry way. I can go dance in any illusion that I want. And that's why this issue, this issue of MS, this is really an issue of truth. In other words, yes, I'm going, I'm going through the actions of religious observance. But where's my heart? Do I really want to arrive at a sense of compelling reality, or am I happy with the world that's around me? Right. There are many examples of this. I'll give I'll give a couple of examples of this. Um, one of them is is, is it comes out very sharply in the concepts of in the concepts of Mashiach in right? the concepts of Mashiach, and the other one comes up in the concepts of luxury. Let me give you two examples. After a person leaves this world, God asks the person a number of questions. God asks the person, the first question that God asks the person after he lives, leaves this world is, did he, was he honest in business? That's the first question. Nasata Vinasasa be'emunah. Did you deal honestly in business? That's the first question. The second question is, Did you learn Torah? Did you establish time to understand God through His Torah, through His wisdom? And then the third question is, Yeshua, Were you waiting for Mashiach? These are the three questions. Now, the question of, Were you honest in business? Which means, did you live up to the basic... The basic um, responsibility of a human being—that's understandable. Unfortunately, not terribly accessible in the world around us, but it's an understandable question. Asakta batara, did you learn Torah? Which means, did you nurture yourself with a connection of understanding God through understanding His His works—is a logical question. But right. well, where does the the Yeshua business come in? Why is that so significant? Did I wait? Was I waiting for Mashiach? Right. Why is that so central? What does that have to do with the day of judgment for a person? Yes, the belief in Mashiach is one of the 13 principles, but there are 12 others. The other 12 are not asked, but that one is. Tzipisla Yeshua. Not did you, do you believe in Mashiach? Did you wait for him? Were you anxious for him? Tzipisla Yeshua. Now, why is that so central? Before I answer the question why it's so central, I must tell you a story, which we're all very far away from, but at least happened to a Jew that I know. The, uh, the years that I was learning in Lakewood, the, a yeshiva has a rosh yeshiva, which is like a dean, and it has a mashgiach. Right? It has a mashgiach, who is responsible for the ethical development, quote unquote, of the students. That's the mashgiach. He's usually a saintly figure. He is, he is often viewed as somebody that's out of contact with reality, but it's not really so. But in any case, um, in any case, the, the particular Meshgiyach, who is, is uh, he should live and be well, um, always spoke about the concept of Mashiach. This was a favorite subject of his. When you sent him your wedding invitation... He resented the fact that you had written down an address somewhere in Brooklyn in New York for where it would be taking place. You know, being that you sent it out two, three months ahead of time, he used to call you into the office and say, how do you know that it won't be in Yerushalayim? You should say that it will be in Yerushalayim, and God forbid if Mashiach doesn't come, so then it will take place in this and this place. Um, these kinds of things. In any case, just to believe that this wasn't all, you know, this wasn't just all a show... Um, there was a certain individual it was a couple of years before I came to the yeshiva that was a very creative fellow and he dug up all kinds of weird customs and he dug up a custom that before one gets married the ten days before a person gets married is like the ten days of penitence and a person should blow shofar in order to wake up his heart for tshuva so he decides, you know, the first of his ten days before his marriage, he's in the dormitory late at night and he's going to blow sheifer. He's going to blow sheifer. And he, he's, he blows the sheifer. He blows the sheifer for himself, you know, for his to wake up his spiritual introspection. And the Majgir comes running out of his room in the middle of the night with his briefcase and he says, Who is there? Where is he? Now what that means is that uh, we are told that the coming of Mashiach will be announced by Elijah by the blowing of a Shefer. And the, this particular Mashiach had a suitcase set aside when Mashiach would come. And when he heard the blowing of the Shefer in the middle of no place, it was in the middle of the year, it wasn't before Rosh Hashanah, he came running out of his room by the testimony of many and asked, Who is there? Where is he? So, you know, the, the belief in Mashiach... As, as distant as we might be from it it was something which throbbed very, very deeply in Jewish hearts but why is it so central? why is it one of the three questions that's asked of a Jew when he comes up after having lived a life in this world so one of my teachers Rav Hutna Zecherina of blessed memory answered it in the following way and it brings across this point very, very vividly when, when we are taken to task for having given in, uh, when we did to negative inclination, we really have, um, we really have certain arguments that, that can give us a certain measure of, of excuse or leniency, even when we did give in to our negative inclination. What are they? The, so the Talmud and Bracha says, our deepest desire our deepest desire really is to do what you want us to do God but what gets us off the track the, the, um, the, um, the, uh, the, uh, the creativity and the imagination of all of the illusion being reality which the negative inclination works speedily in our minds to create fantastic pictures of success and Shibud Malchias. We are impacted by our environment. We live in an environment which has uh, certain values and certain goals and consciously or subconsciously we become influenced by those things. We pick them up. What's important? What's valuable? What should we run after? And the assumption that we can live with millions of people around us running after utter nonsense, and we know it's utter nonsense, and because we know it's utter nonsense, we won't be affected by it is not true. The fact that people are involved in it, and day in and day out, on conscious and subconscious levels, we see that people are involved on all kinds of different levels, of all kinds of Meshuggana lifestyles, it has an effect. It has an effect. It wears away at us. It wears away at us, and on that day of judgment, when God says, why did you do this and why did you do that? We can tell him the Yetzirah is the most creative thing I ever saw and he made me believe that it was great. That's number one. But I can also say that a certain amount of my weakness comes because you thrust me into an environment that I wasn't in control of. And the environment knocked, took away some of my strength, took away some of my clarity, took away some of the target that I should be living with. And that's not my doing. You thrust me into that situation and it's in- inevitable. It's one of those inevitables. I can't help myself. So Ravutna pointed out in a very deep way, he said, who can turn to God and say, God, please deal with me leniently because really I wanted to do the right thing but my, in- but my environment influenced me. Who can really make that statement I really feel that statement. I really wanted to do what you wanted me to do. But my environment did it to me. It can only be a person that in fact feels badly about the influence of his environment and is not happy with his environment. So a person who's truly not happy with his environment can turn to God and say, listen, I'm not happy with it. I never signed on the dotted line. I didn't hire the environment. The environment was there. And I'm really not happy with it. And I struggle with it. So take that into consideration. On the other hand, if a person is utterly happy with the environment around him, he likes things to be doing, you know, you know there's so much going on, you know? he can't then say, oh God, it's really not my fault, it's, my, you know, it's that environment which I just can't deal with around me, that, you know, that I really don't like, that, that's pushing. He can't say that. Because if, if you take the, you know, if that, that environment around you, you take it with both hands, and you love it, and you, you can't let go of it, and you can't think of living anywhere else, you can't then use it as your defense. Where is the test? See, peace to Yeshua. The test, if you're comfortable with your environment, and that is, were you hoping for better? Were you hoping for Mashiach? Were you hoping to be able to live in an environment that was more consistent with the goals that you were going in? And that, in other words, that is a very critical question in the question that Rav Meshachayim Latzat is presenting. Kilulai ha'yu raitzim l'kvaya yid hasagazu. Are you really looking for it or are you secretly very happy with everything that's around you? One of the major questions when we struggle with illusion and reality is, are you happy with the illusion around you, or are you not? So sometimes a person will say, "Yeah, I'm not, I'm not happy with it." And then you ask the question, yeah, "You want Mashiach?" You know, there's a there's a, there's a joke which is said, which happens to be a truth. You know, two Jews were talking to each other, and the one was saying to the other, "What'll happen if this'll happen?" To, to your business, he says, the Eibishtavet Helfen. And, and what will happen if uh, this person will become sick? The Eibishtavet Helfen, which means God will help. And then the other he, the, the fellow asks, and he says, and what happens if Mashiach comes? So he says, the Eibishtavet Helfen. Uh-huh. God will help if that, God will help if... In other words, we'll worry about that problem when it happens also. There's, you know, there's a... One has to deal with this. In other words, are we really terribly comfortable you know, with what's around us. If we're terribly comfortable with what's around us so that we don't have the the the, the we haven't gotten to a home plate in terms of beginning to 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 make a move towards spiritual growth. And that's what Remoshe Chaim Latzat is saying. Remoshe Chaim Latzat is saying is the first thing is that I have to want. That's the first thing. Do you want? It's the same thing like like in a relationship. A couple comes to me. And they're fighting and, you know, and they believe that, you know, they're at the point of irreconcilable differences and so on and so forth. And they're really ripping away. And they're coming to me. One of the first things that I deal with is, do you both want to work on trying to make this come together or not? You need that they should both want to make it work. If one wants to make it work and the other one doesn't want it to make it to work, there is no help in the world that can help. The two people have to want to work on it. If they don't want to work on it, it's not going to all the advice in the world is not going to help. And it's the same thing over here. In the relationship in relationship to spiritual growth, you have to want first. And have to want to grow means that I'm not happy where I am. Right? I want more. It doesn't necessarily mean that what's in my life right now is terribly disappointing or negative but I have to at least not be happy and I have to want more the way that Solomon the King describes it is Solomon the King says the nature of a neshama if one is open to the feelings of one's neshama is that the neshama is never happy the neshama always wants more the soul always wants more the soul is always yearning for more but I have to be able to to tackle that am I running away from the fact that I want more or am I am I willing to face that I want more that's the first thing that Rav Meshachayim Latzata says ah if man would only want because that's the first step the wanting is the first step now Ach, but even Shalayzahu b'nei Adam But because man didn't become meritorious through the selections of his actions. But the exact opposite. They ran after the things which were were false and were illusion. Things that appeared to be real but really weren't. You know what the word tarmis is? I don't know how it's translated in the English. I have a Hebrew copy in front of me. What Tarmus is, is a facade. That's what it is. What? A deception. deception. Okay, deception. But since they went after something which was a, a deception, and then they built rationales in order to support those deceptions, because man can never live without building a rationale around the deception. that we mentioned before, once man begins to run after deception and support it with rationales, then God now has to take other learning patterns which include Gulas, which include the the spiritual alienation and the spiritual exposure of the Jew to all kinds of alien environments. By which the Jew finally comes to realize the emptiness of the other lifestyles that he maintained were those glitters, were those val- terribly valuable things. She, pun of hester. and God hides himself further and further away, A is and it's conceivable that evil becomes stronger and stronger in the world in the absence of God imposing himself on man. And it's conceivable that evil has the greatest and the most imaginable power in this world. And our sages in expressing this say There is no day whose curse is not worse than the day before. They don't say it that way. They say it in the negative because they don't want to say it in an unpleasant way. They say there's no day that the blessing isn't bigger than the day before, but they really mean the opposite. In other words, when we want to go on our own and we want to do it on our own and we want to manage on our own, so God says, fine, I'll step back and I will let you experience everything that you want to experience. And man has the freedom of, of experiencing anything and everything which automatically opens him up to every possibility. And every possibility means every depth right and I'm not talking about the depth of wisdom I'm talking about other kinds of depths but after everything is said and done and these are very beautiful words in Lazaro pissam yave el no matter what even if man elects to reach literally the the, the depths of everything that is the antithesis of morality and uh, and of value. God has a commitment that even if that is the election of man, God will all, all, seemingly all of a sudden enter into his into his palace, the palace being this world. and then he will demonstrate his uniqueness, his exclusiveness, his ultimate value, and the Nilik Hashem and uh, the respect of God will become apparent, kol basa And this will be an experience that all humanity will come to grips with. And we pointed out, and I'm not going to go over this again, we pointed out that this becomes a learning pattern. By literally experiencing everything and the emptiness of everything, that is what opens up the person to be able to then deal with that tremendous revelation. Because after having gone through everything else and realized that it's still missing, then one is ready to accept that which one was never ready to accept before. Because now I have a lot of experience behind me and I know it to be true through my experience and through everything that I've learned that is not. Now, Rav Meshachayim has introduced here a term which is a very, very confusing term on philosophical levels and on emotional levels. He has introduced a term which is referred to as Panim, the hiding or the concealment of God's face. Now, this is an extremely confusing term and has been used in certain circles to be the foundation of what has become wrongly interpreted and has become the foundation of things that are, are literally, from a Jewish standpoint, opposite Jewish belief. Panim does not mean that God is not involved. That is not what Hester Hesterponin means. Hesterponin means that God's involvement is measured by his disinvolvement. In other words, that God stands back and allows certain processes to occur because God knows that... At no point is God, does God make a departure from his commitment to the world that the world should ultimately become connected to God through a realization of God. That commitment that God established when he created the world never, God never departs from God never moves away from that commitment. That is a commitment that is ironclad from the moment of creation to the end of times. And in that sense God is always connected to his world. But there are direct involvements and there are indirect involvements. But at all times, God is connected to that ultimate goal and committed to that ultimate goal. But sometimes that ultimate goal can come by God giving to man and assisting man in positive things to reach one step closer to that goal. And sometimes that goal is reached by exactly not doing that, by exactly holding back So that man should come to realize what he's missing and ask for it and strive for it and try to acquire it. Do you follow what I'm saying? So in these situations where there is a Hester pun and where God conceals himself, that's not a concealment from the goal. The goal remains the goal. And the intent of the creation remains the intent of the creation. But God goes into a process which is a concealment process. But it's the process that is ultimately to reach that goal. Uh, that is what Hester Punim is in, a, in an authentic Jewish perspective. Hester Punim never means that God leaves the world and once God leaves the world, anything can happen. In other words, the idea, for instance, of explaining the Holocaust as it was once explained by a very quote-unquote famous writer that it's Hester Punim and God left the world and because God left the world, any monster or satanic uh, uh, power is able to take over the world, and in that way we resolve the conflict between where was God and what happened. This is not Jewish belief. In other words, the assumption that God left, so anything can happen, and you can't hold God responsible anymore because He left, and He'll come back later. This is not what Hester Panin means. Hester Panin merely means that God's relationship is a concealed one. It's not a, a direct one. It's not an overt one where we can see positive giving, positive input. We don't see that and it's not obvious. And even where there is Hesterpanim, there's giving, but it's on the, uh, on the most minimal level of giving. For were there not giving, and if Hesterpanim meant that God left the world, the se- world would cease to exist. You know, the whole notion that Hesterpanim is that God left, is is a contradiction to the whole existence of the world because if God left the world wouldn't be here anymore because the world has to be nurtured from moment to moment so the deepest hester Hesterpanim is still a God that's keeping the world going from moment to moment right? so Hesterpanim never means a total divorce from his world quite, quite to the contrary he's constantly giving and the world is existing from moment to moment because of his giving but it's on the most minimal level the positive giving that makes advances towards growing closer and closer towards God, those positive forms of giving, of blessing, and so on and so forth, those things don't exist. The temple doesn't exist. The prophet doesn't exist. You know, g- the great people don't exist. Those kinds of things are all forms of Hester Punim. But the intention of those things are that through the lack, we come to tackle the issues that we didn't want to tackle before, before we took it for granted, or we didn't use them for what they were worth, right? which is very much what Tisha Bav is all about. We took the base of HaMikdash for granted. It was a tremendous blessing. We didn't use it for what it was. We took it all for granted. So God says, uh-uh, that ain't, that's not the way that uh, things can go. So God takes something back, and uh, unfortunately, that's human nature. When we lose something, that's when we begin studying what it was all about. And we begin to gain an appreciation in its absence. And by gaining an appreciation in its absence, we hopefully will come back to be able to be worthy of it by learning what it was while it's not here. So him by no means is a total disassociation from the world. It's a process where God holds back and the holding back itself is a process that's destined to get man to tackle with that which he doesn't want to tackle with. This is what Hester Panim is all about. Now, what Rav Meshachayim gets into over here is a very, very interesting thing. What changes in the world when there is God's concealment? All right? The world goes on existing. That's true. Uh, certain blessings are obvious that we don't have. The land of Israel, Abes HaMikdash, on the levels that we used to have it, that we don't have. All right, so that's obvious are there any other ramifications of hester Hesterpanam are there any other ways of measuring hester Right, it's not a total disassociation he is involved but he holds back certain things and in that sense he's concealed concealed means holding back not giving in what ways can we measure that and we'll see in a minute why that's so important to measure let's see this paragraph it happens to be a very very beautiful paragraph Lazarus <laughs> says something here which is very beautiful, and Lazarus says over here the following thing: Hester punim is not the natural and healthy state for the world to live in or for man to live in. The intention of man, the productivity of man, the productivity of the world was with God facing the world in his entirety. That is the natural, most productive state for this world. The world was programmed to be able to produce and to be a blissful place to the extent that this world is connected to a direct face to face relationship with Hashem. That's how it that's how it's that's how it's that's how it's set up. And in the absence of that face to face relationship with God, we have uh, various things which go wrong. And he identifies two. One is a spiritual thing and one is a physical thing. And they're both very fascinating. On a spiritual level on a spiritual level he, I, he says, nifse du hadais. people's philosophies go off, off kilter. Now this is a phenomenal concept, because what is, and, and let me just finish up, what's on the physical level, and on the physical level, fruit lose their taste. Now let me explain what both mean, because they're both phenomenal concepts. Let's deal with the spiritual one first. I think that everybody here either in their own lives or in trying to explain to somebody else have definitely confronted talking to somebody in a spiritual vein either to themselves or to somebody else at a period of time for themselves or for the other person where the other person looks at you and thinks that you're off the wall. you correct. You're crazy. You're talking about soul, you're talking about a particular pattern, you're talking about, you know, you're, you know, you're going through a stage, you know, nebuch, you know. <laughs> uh, cults and these other things. I once had uh, a mother that came into me literally in tears. You got my son into a cult. Uh, because it was coming in. Now, now, what are we dealing with over here? What we're dealing over here is with an authentic problem. We're dealing with the, the uh, on Cal, in Californian terms. The way this is referred to, and I think it's even understandable in Eastern terms, is you're not on the same wavelength. It's different wavelengths. I mean, I just can't relate to it. But Moshe Chaim Lezatta says that the inability of mankind to relate on on those spiritual wavelengths is a direct result of hester is a direct result of god's concealment now let me explain this because this is this has a lot of parts to it let me let me put it in its right perspective there's no doubt that a certain amount of a person's inability to be able to understand certain things in spirituality are a product of environment are a product of behavior his own behavior, a product of schooling, habit, what he's been acquainted to in terms of certain premises that he's mo- that he's that he's grown up with, and they're difficult to change. All of a sudden, I have to change my ideas. There's no question that a major part of our inability to comprehend a higher spiritual level have to do with those factors and some of them we are in control of and some of them we're not in control of we just were born into them there's no question but beyond all of that there is also a certain measure of inability to comprehend a spiritual level that comes out of God's concealment and let me explain this when we deal with the concept of God's concealment where God says I'm not going to show my face which means I'm not going to give in the same way God's decision not to give which Rav Chaim Litzat is going to eloquently speak about later is a decision which we made not which God made in other words when God makes a decision of Hester Panim it's because we've made a decision of Hester Panim first in other words man can turn to God and say God I want you to face me I want you, and I want all of the implications of what a connection to you means. I want it. If man truly wants it, going back to those words of Lozato, right, so then God gives it to the person and opens up the person in due process to that, to everything that the relationship implies. On the other hand, if the person says, God, mix out of my business, and uh, uh, I'd rather do this by myself, and when I have a problem, I'll come to you with my psalms or with my siddhar or I'll visit you on Shabbos. But the rest of the week, it's my life, and I want to live it by myself. So then we're pushing the button of Hester Panim. In other words, maybe God, maybe God wouldn't, maybe God would be there if I would be searching for Him. That's that's the idea. So really, the concept of Hester Panim. Really, really begins, really begins. Where did it initiate itself? It initiated itself in man saying, I don't need it. I don't need, I don't need, I don't need the intensity of the relationship. I don't need the responsibility of the relationship. I don't, I don't want, I don't want everything that that relationship entails. That's where it starts from. Once it starts from there, it is only, it is only just it's only the just thing that I should now have an impediment in being able to comprehend, because if I've closed my mind to it, I've said, God, I don't, you know, I, I, I don't want you to be involved. Right. So then I will. I. Th- it's only logical that now I will not be able to enjoy the same measure of understanding. That I won't be able to access the same feelings and the same inspiration and the same direction and the same strength because i don't want it i want something else is more important to me at this point in time so god says i'll hold it back not because i don't want you to have it but because it's it's fruitless at this point it'll only be mischanneled at this point god holds it back but the concealment starts the concealment starts from man and the the extent of the of the chiddush of this is is that a person, the extent of how far this goes is because a person can say, listen, you throw at me a philosophical concept. A philosophical concept is understood by brain matter. So the fact that I don't want God in my life, what does that have to do with brain matter? Uh, If I have a brain, I should be able to understand it. And if what you're saying to me doesn't make any sense to me, then it's a lot of baloney. It's not because I'm not on a spiritual wavelength. It's, It's baloney, But it's not that way. Even our ability... To understand intellectually is impeded by the statements which we make in terms of our relationship to God and this is the uniqueness this is really the re- uniqueness when you're dealing not just with a, a body of knowledge but when you're dealing with something which is a way of life see when a person is dealing with something that's not just 2 plus 2 equals 4 but you're dealing with something that goes into the kishkes goes into the guts of what life is all about and why life is worth living you can't cut God out and still understand the meaning of what that life is all about you can't really absorb what Torah is all about without God it's the, the possibility of Torah being what it's supposed to be for a person but without God, I don't believe in God but I want to read the book for the book value it, it won't work it won't work because because the, the Torah is is not just two plus two equals four. It's not that kind of a it's not that kind of a thing. And therefore, if I'm not prepared to open my life to it, I won't be able to comprehend it on an intell- uh, Truly, I won't be able to comprehend it on an intellectual level either. While on the other hand, it's very conceivable that that which was beyond me intellectually, if I only want God, I'll be able to begin to comprehend. And this is why the advances that people make intellectually in terms of understanding Judaism simply because they want are, are miraculous. You get a person that for the first 20-30 years of his life never came into contact with any of it all right, and all of a sudden decides that he has a real, real deep desire this is what I want and I don't want anything else more than I want this. And the, the vessel to learn and the speed with which he grows and the depth which he receives in his learning far outstrips the person that went began going to school when he was three years old. Sometimes the extent that a person can grow in a matter of, of, of a few years it's ununderstandable. There's no way of explaining it. How far a person can grow? I've seen it many many times and the reason is very simple because once there's Ha'aris panim, once there's the illuminated face of Hashem and Hashem is paying attention to the person and there's a connection between Hashem and the person the person can access beyond what's imaginable so even intellectual perception is very much tied to relationship and this is why this is why right after the giving of the Torah we have the portion of the tabernacle and there's a very famous Midrash about this. The Midrash says that w- when did God marry us? When was the marriage between God and, and, and the Jewish people? The marriage was in the giving of Torah. So the Midrash says, so, and right after the giving of Torah we have this issue with the tabernacle. So the Midrash says a very interesting thing. The Midrash says that this is compared to a king who had a daughter, who understood that the daughter would have to marry couldn't stay tied to the father's coat strings forever right? but at the same time the king had difficulty in, in, in saying goodbye to, to his daughter difficulty so he said I tell you what I have an idea you go ahead and get married and build for me in the back of your house a little room where I can stay the the disaster the, the nightmare of any in-law, of son-in-laws and daughter-in-laws But this is what the Medrash says. So the Medrash says in similar fashion, God gave us a Torah, and God says, I can't leave the Torah. I can't leave the Torah. To give it to you and leave it, I can't. That's impossible. So therefore, I'm going to give you the Torah, but with the Torah you have to take me too. And that's the concept of the tabernacle. That's the analogy that's given to the tabernacle. What's that analogy saying? What that analogy is saying is that our intellectual perception of God that we can get through Torah can only go with a commitment to face God at the same time. If we don't have a commitment to face God, yeah, we can go through the intellectual gymnastics of Torah. But what, what the body of Torah is in terms of making us into different human beings won't happen. We'll be monsters. We'll be monsters and that's why it's possible to learn Torah and to be a monster because what we have to ask ourselves is am I looking for God even when we're learning Torah we have to ask ourselves the question are we looking for God and if we're not looking for God we can learn Torah and we can still be monsters as human beings we have to be looking for God and this is the example You know, going away from the Mashiach example and getting into the guts of it this is another perfect example of the same thing are we really looking for God? Right. And if a person learns the Torah and you know and, and uh, likes all of the intellectual gymnastics and likes the knowledge and likes to talk and likes to discuss for hours and you know and all of that, but is not really looking for God, then the chemistry of really being able to comprehend and really being able to thrive and really to be a- really being able to feel creativity in the Torah and to be able to, to feel that the, I have a part in it doesn't happen. And that's why we talk about two concepts together. V'tayali beinu be'emes and v'sein In many of our prayers we talk about two things together. We say, give me my portion in Torah and give me a purity of intent in my heart to worship you. And those two things are asked for one after the other. What's the relationship between them? One seems to be worship, and one seems to be intellectual. We're asking God for intellectual genius in Torah, but they're directly related to each other. Because if there's vitayli bein la'av if there's a purity of heart, I want to get to you, God. The fact that I want to get to you, God, that purity will get me to my portion in Torah. See, the reason why people sometimes don't feel happy in their Judaism is because they never made a decision that they're looking for God what are my obligations and what do I have to do but what am I looking for I'm looking for everything that everybody else has in the world that's what's important to me but I'll go through all of these different things and then obviously they come back not happy because they're going through the, the rote of one lifestyle but their heart is in a different lifestyle that doesn't work it doesn't work and of course there's going to be unhappiness The my feeling part of it and my sensing that I can be creative in it and that I have my portion in it and that I can make my contribution in it and that I, I can enjoy it comes when we make that decision am I looking for God or am I just looking to, to fulfill my responsibilities within the framework you know Checklist. Yeah, I did my obligations for that. God can't hold anything against me, and now, now I go my merry way. It's a no. It's a it's a very it's a very big question. The other area where this comes up is also in in how we make decisions in terms of things that are important to us. Um, this is another. Uh, let's say a person has a thirty thousand dollar job offer or a fifty thousand dollar job offer. And the whole difference between the two jobs is that on one job I will never have time to learn and the other job I will have as much time as I want evenings to learn. Fine. Fine. So now, does it say anywhere in Jewish law that it's an aver to make $50,000? No. It doesn't say anywhere that it's a sin to make $50,000. doesn't say it. So a person can say, listen, I'll put on my tefillin and I'll do my mitzvahs and learning is anyway only if you have time. So I'll take the $50,000 job. I won't have time. If I don't have time, God can't hold it against me. Finished. And that's the end of it. This is another place where that issue comes up. Am I really looking? What am I really looking for? Am I looking for the $50,000 job and to try to appease my guilty conscience that I'm doing what God wants me to do? Or am I really looking for God and to the extent that I have to that I have to manage, I have to responsibly look for a job that's going to be able to maintain me. It's a, totally, it's a totally different perspective. And the ability to be happy with less has a lot to do with this. Because the ability to be happy with less, in the material sense, is not because I train myself to be happy with less, it's because there's something that's more important to me. I'm looking for God and it's, it's worth it. There's a trade-off here. It's worth it for me to get less because I'm going to have something else which is more important to me. And a lot of the, a lot, I'll tell you the truth, you know, there are all kinds of questions that come up, um, and they're very common questions that come up, and it's not to say that these weaknesses don't exist outside of religious circles, but even within religious circles there are all kinds of problems um, that people people don't watch, how they talk to other people, and, you know, how many, times, how many times do I have to deal with people that are, are looking at Judaism and I have to talk myself blue in the face because the person comes in and says, well, if this person can be dishonest to this person in business or if this person can insult this person like this, who the heck needs Judaism? You know, I can spend major portions of days trying to explain that you have to separate people from Judaism. But when the people leave my office, I ask myself the question, but how does it come? You know, after I tell them whatever I tell them, but what? how does it come to be? The way that it comes to be is because those people are not uh, truthfully on the path to begin with. In other words, they haven't really made a firm decision to begin with. That what's the See, if a person makes a decision that the most important thing is that Hashem should be happy with me, Or that I should be able to feel closer to Hashem. So then under the temptation, under the temptation of being dishonest in business, I say, I'll make another thousand dollars, but I'm going to lose in terms of how I can feel honestly about my relationship with Hashem. So when a person uh, relates to his Yiddishkeit in terms of I'm looking for Hashem and I want Hashem to be happy with me and I want to be able to feel that Hashem is happy with me, that will be a deterrent. And he won't do something that's inconsistent with Yiddishkeit. But if the person is really not looking for that and is just looking to be yaitza, he's just looking to fulfill his obligations in the, in the, with all of the... You know, so then you look for all of the loopholes and very often when you look for the loopholes, loopholes, you fall out completely. You know, where There are no loopholes where there's nothing. And, and that's where it comes from. Is there that sincerity? When we talk about davening, for instance, that's another example. People come and they say, I, I can't daven it's impossible for me to dive and I can't concentrate after two minutes I'm thinking about about what I did yesterday or what I'm going to do tomorrow the problem of concentration which is by the way is a a very very difficult discipline it's not nothing Uh, it's not nothing the discipline of concentration is a very big discipline but part of it is the willingness to let go of everything else part of our problem with concentrating is that we're really not willing to let go I want to always be in control. What does it mean to leave go? That the whole world doesn't exist for the next half hour. What do you mean? There are a lot of important things in my life. And I have to figure out what I'm going to do here and what's this and how did that person react and what will I tell this person and what will I say here. There's a lot of important things in my life. And we don't want to let go of those things. But again, if we make a decision that of content, we make a decision of reality, and I want the relationship with Hashem and I really want that relationship then I have at least something to work with then I would be embarrassed to stand in front of Hashem my concentration might not get better but when I finished davening and I didn't think one word about what I was saying I'm at least embarrassed because you wouldn't do that with the person that you loved you wouldn't talk to a person that you loved and mumble and be thinking about something else you wouldn't do that because you would know the other person would feel insulted. You would feel that yourself, that you've lost an opportunity to to, to to relate in a meaningful way. You would at least feel embarrassed with it. Now, the person that's not interested in the relationship when he finishes his Shemonasera either doesn't even realize that he finished his Shemonasera and didn't think about it for a moment, or... Well, we'll say, what can we do? You know, the time's a week. uh, Nobody really concentrates. And, you know, (laughs) it's better than not doing it at all. At least I fulfilled, you know, I went through the motions. But that's not good enough for a person that's looking for Hashem. That's nonsense. Relationships, we don't play games. At least we're not supposed to. Those those are the most frustrating things. Those are all examples (coughs) of this. Coming back coming back to the second paragraph which I got off of. So in terms of intellectual clarity, Rav Chaim says that if you come to a generation that just doesn't understand what you're talking about, right? They just, the, the whole wavelength, the whole goal, the, 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 you know where we see this? I'll tell you where we see this. Those of us that were children are na, on, and are now parents Or people that just have grown somewhat older without, without insulting anybody can, can gauge the difference. Can gauge the difference of, like there are things that my kids can tell me that I would never have thought of telling my parents. There's just, there's differences in generations. I'm just using that as one example. In terms of spiritual striving, spiritual understanding, and things like that, all in all there's tremendous differences and it affects everybody because if the world changes and the striving of the world changes our ability to perceive spiritually also changes and is also diminished it doesn't mean that an individual that's determined can't reach tremendously high levels but all in all the world just gravitates differently and their understanding and what turns people on and off changes everything changes and that's all a product of the concealment. When there wasn't concealment, people strived. When there wasn't concealment, people felt bad about things that they weren't able to accomplish. And today, in a state of concealment, as Rav Chaim says, evil has the ability of getting stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. One of the products, if I would want to point to it, in terms of our own world today, the concealment of Hashem, to the extent that it's become concealed today, is what's allowed that all forms of negative lifestyle, which existed 20 years ago too, and 40 years ago too, but at least people were embarrassed to, to show it. Today, not only aren't they embarrassed to show it, but they make parades of pride to show it. That's also the extent of the difference is directly related, is directly related to the Hester Punim. But it's not a Hesterpanim that we can say, God, it's your fault that there are gay parades today because of Hesterpanim. Because the Hesterpanim that led to that situation was a Hesterpanim that man initiated. It has a way of spiraling and becoming worse and worse and deeper and deeper and deeper. And this is also part of the learning pattern. This is the stubbornness of the learning pattern that man establishes that will eventually come to a good end but obviously, there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of fallout that comes out in between. Now, on a physical level, Rav Meshachayim Lutzata says something else. Rav Meshachayim Lutzata says that on a physical level, the food that we eat is not as good. Nittel tam haperis. Now, this is a phenomenal concept. Rav Meshachayim Lutzata says you want to measure Hester Panim, I'll tell you how to measure it a Santa Rosa plum today doesn't taste as good as it did when we had a on HaMikdash now that sounds very peculiar you know what is this holy man talking about plums for right but there's something very deep here because what Rav Moshe Chaim Latzat is saying is that the spiritual health of the world is indicative of Hashem's relationship with the world if Hashem has a relationship with the world even the physical parts of the world are healthier they have more taste to them so when we had a of HaMikdash it meant that God was more bound to the world there was less Hester upon him there was less concealment the fruit tasted better Rav Moshe Chaim will make an allusion to the fact to that certain animals will, will prey upon man or will fight amongst each other and that's also a result of God's concealment because in the concealment of God from man, the animal loses its appreciation for man too. Even the animal can sense the lack of a relationship between God and man. And when when the animal doesn't sense the relationship, so then the animal looks at man as a two-headed animal, as a two-footed uh, two feet, two-footed animal instead of a four-footed animal. It's a phenomenal concept, but that sensitivity goes over into the physical, even taste of things, and even into the recognition of the different levels of species. The animal won't have the same respect for the the human species as it would normally have. I mean, this concept comes up. It comes up in the Chumash. It comes up in other places as well. But it sounds weird. It sounds weird that an animal should be able to sense uh, the absence of the image of God in, ma- uh, in man but the animal can sense it when the Jew left Egypt the verse makes a point of saying that no dog barked now in Kabbalistic literature for whatever, it's, whatever it means on the deeper levels the barking of a dog is viewed as, as a measure of chutzpah that's the way it's measured The notion of the dog running ahead and, so to speak, being the leader or the dog barking and uh, trying to ruin the trend of thought or attention of man is seen in certain circumstances as chutzpah. Obviously, the dog is doing it to protect the master or other things like that. It's not. But the Zohar talks about the fact that the barking of the dog comes from an aspect of chutzpah. In fact, in some of our Kabbalistic literature, that's related to the Shabbos we talk about hani kalben de we talk about the dogs which also means on symbolic levels it doesn't mean it only on literal levels but when the Jew left Egypt even the dog knew that there was something very special going on that the people that were leaving Egypt were reaching a new level of a relationship with God that had never till that point ever come forth in the world the dog kept quiet even on the dog's part there was a recognition of the, of the difference. Right? The Gemara says this. The Gemara says that if one sees that animals come into, into, into civilization where they normally don't come and they create damage in civilization, the Gemara says that we have to be worried. The Talmud says that we have to be worried that we did the kinds of sins that remove from us the image of God, that removed from us the spiritual aura uh, that is con- that is created by our connection to Hashem. And there are particular things that the Gemara talks about that we must have done in order to lose that aura. And by losing that aura, the animals come. Again, that there's a, a direct sensitivity and there's a, a relationship between the physical world and the level of the, sp- of the spirituality in the Hesterpanim or the lack of Hesterpanim. And this is what he's pointing out over here. And all of the bad things that our sages tell us, and that which we see with our own eyes. Look at our world, and there's so much emptiness in our world. Rosado wrote it 250 years ago. If he would have lived today, I wonder what he would have said. And as our sages tell us, this is phenomenal. In the times before Mashiach, in other words, when the levels will reach their lowest spiritual levels, there will be two things which will be prevalent. What two things will be prevalent? Chutzpah will be prevalent in the world, tremendous audacity, and also inflation. These are the two things which will be present. Now, the chutzpah part of it we all understand, because because there is because there is this lack of Hashem's connection to the world. Our lack of appreciation of uh, Hashem being connected to the world, so then there's nothing that's important, nothing that's important. So chutzpah, what chutzpah means what chutzpah is, and what audacity is, is the dropping of all levels of of any kind of significance or importance. Nothing is important. Nothing is chashiv. Nothing nothing stands 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 separate and important. That's what chutzpah What's a statement of chutzpah? You're nothing, or you're no different than anybody else. That's, that's what chutzpah is and that's a product of the hesterpanim that's, he, that's a product of that whole cycle of man saying that it's not important and by man saying it's not important there's a hesterpanim and eventually a person just loses contact and it, it's not important I can't even understand how it's important and I'll trample on it it's, it's unimportant chutzpah yaskin and also yiker yamir which refers to inflation this can be understood in two ways what does inflation have to do with hesterpanam? It could be understood in two ways. One way that it could be understood is that when there's hesterpanim, there is a lack of certain items, there is a lack of certain services, the world can't produce in the normal ways of production, uh, if it's because we import more than we export or whatever it might be, which creates an inflationary state. Were there no hastapunim, Hashem would give us everything that we would need in exact measure. And there wouldn't be an inflation. This is one way of understanding it. Another way of understanding it is that a lot of inflation comes from materialistic goals to begin with. I need to have a million different things and I need to have just this product and and so on and so forth and all of the different things that we do because the ultimate goal is the material success. And sometimes those kinds of material goals without God is what generate some of the things that feed a situation of, of inflation. But what Rav Meshachayim is saying over here is, is something which really borders on the philosophy of the, of the duties of the heart. You can deal with this whole issue, and truthfully up to this point I really dealt with it on a very spiritually, emotional level. You can deal with it on a very practical level. Rav Moshe Chaim Latzata says, "Hester him is no fun. There's no fun in it. The fruit doesn't taste good. You can't understand everything that's available to be understood. Uh, there's there's the breaking down of all or of all levels. You know, with all of the audacity in the world and the people that have chutzpah and they feel that they have control and power by virtue of their chutzpah, but after everything is said and done, there's an terrible ugliness and void in a world that only lives with chutzpah because then nobody has anything left to look up to nobody has anything to cherish because everything is torn down and everything is ripped down and nothing is important anymore so while we think that oh we're in control and I can strike out and I can lash out and anything and everything that I want but in the end we remain we remain without anything because in our tearing down all of the different things we're really left with nothing and man can't function that way man needs things to look up to man needs to strive towards things man needs to give respect to things it's a, these are basic human needs for the person to be able to climb for the person to be able to grow so Rav Meishchaim is saying that Hester Panim is unnatural it's not the natural state for the world when I said that in California everybody said okay so tell me the right thing to do you know because who wants to be unnatural in California <laughs> but it's so unnatural it's so it's not real it's unreal and it's not pragmatic that's what Rav Meshachem Lutzat is saying it's, it's not it's not real it's the closing down of understanding it's the closing down of sensing and feeling everything the real way that we can feel things this is what he's alluding to the ability of not being able to sense and to value and to appreciate this is all the strength of the evil, of the evil force. But when God will reveal Himself, all of a sudden people will be able to understand. When God will come back and God will be connected, all of a sudden things are going to begin making sense that never made sense before. And this isn't only on the world level. This is also on the, this is also on the on the uh, on the personal level, when a person begins to want to look at Hashem, all of a sudden things start making sense that never made sense before. And everything will go back to the way that it was really intended to be when it was created. And people will be able to to cleave to Hashem. As the verse says, "I will." I will shower and I will let flow upon all humanity, my spirit. People won't teach each other war anymore. But what will they teach each other? I want to teach you something that I learned about God today. I want to share this with you. Everybody will have a knowledge of me, from the smallest to the greatest. That means from the smallest intellectual capacity to the greatest. And not only will the world be in that better state, but the desire of the world, the lust of the world will be to only want to enjoy the holiness of Hashem. That's the extent of the difference. While today everything throbs with another sensation and with another pleasure, the world will throb then too. When Hashem will face the world again, but the world will throb then with wanting nothing more than another experience of feeling Hashem. Of feeling Hashem. Man needs to throb. Man needs to strive. That man needs that. But this, we throb on different things. So what R' Chaim Litzat is saying is, in Hester Panim we throb, but we throb on nothing, on nothingness. When there will be Hares he- Panim, we'll throb, but we'll throb on. Let, can I feel another another measure of Hashem? Can I feel another closeness to Hashem? Can I li- feel another striving to be better and closer to Hashem? As it says in Isaiah, Can I know yet another thing about God because I want to incorporate it into my life? And from this will come the success of all of mankind. And the wolf will live together with the sheep. Saif Dover. No, we'll stop here and I'll take questions before the Saif Dover. Yes. God's name is mentioned in the wall, And I wonder, is, is it true that he was, he was hidden? And that... Um, I I, what I want to say. Well, I'll, I'll start saying, and then maybe you'll get more courage. Mm-hmm. Um, the Purim story is definitely Hester Hesterpanim, but the Hesterpanim that created the entire crisis uh, of the Purim story came from, from particular things which Klal Yisrael had done. The Talmud identifies particular things that were tremendous spiritual failings in, in the Jewish people that brought the entire Purim story to bear. So, yes, the Purim story was an instance of Hester Panim. It was a Hester Panim which we created. And I'd like to explain exactly how. Okay? Okay, I'll show you exactly how. Okay, this this really goes off into another area, which is not so terribly personal, but extremely relevant nevertheless. In the Purim story, and this is by the way, it's available on tape. Uh, you know, I always got to make a pitch for tapes. Um, the um, the Purim story. Uh, there's two opinions why there are two opinions w- why the the entire crisis of Purim occurred. According to one opinion, it was because...